This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So shalom. Don't say run away, Rabbi. I brought you something. Uh, I brought you a rock from Jerusalem. Thank you. You should ask me where it's from. Where is it from? It's from, it's from the Howard Cosell parking lot at the Hebrew University. <laughs> It's my life's mission to bring the parking lot to America, <laughs> piece by piece. Uh, by the way, no one's heard of Howard Cosell in the whole Cosell Center. I'm, I'm actually mic'd up. You just can't see it. You can't hear. Can we turn the volume up, please? Bereshit bara Elohim. You can hear. Okay. Uh, the next gift I have for you is a new invention from Israel. It's a challah cover that has the kiddush on it. You see? You don't need to look for the kiddush anymore. Nice. You read it off the challah cover. It's ingenious. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm very excited. Um, I'm going to make uh, uh, about half an hour of outrageous statements, and then I welcome to hear your questions or your comments. Or um, and we have some uh, ground to cover. We're going to talk about the wall. We're going to talk about El Al. We're going to talk about segregation of women, and we'll talk about racism. Something happens when I move this way. Um, <clears throat> I can tell you that I have a, a very overt a mission. I want all of your emails tonight. And the reason I want it is because I have a weekly newsletter. Raise your hand if you get my newsletter. The readers, are, is it any good, Ira? I will slip Ira the $10 as we walk out. Uh, I need your, your, you, you to read my newsletter, not just uh, to inform you, but to, so I can ask you to sign up petitions and actually help in making change in Israel. It is very, very relaxing when I walk into a minister's office and he says, do you know how many emails I got? And I know, it's 18,211, and they all went through our newsletter, so it's important. And now big things are at stake. What's at stake now is the uh, recommendations of the special commission that Netanyahu has appointed to find a solution to the conflict at the wall. Maybe you know that in Jerusalem there is a the wall. <laughs> you know, the Basheva singer came to Israel, to Israel and his son asked him, well, what do you think, Pops, about this wall? He said, like any other veiling wall. <laughs> is the only wailing wall in the whole world, and it's in Jerusalem, and it's the holiest site of the Jewish people. We are 8.4 million Israelis, and there are 9 million visitors to the wall every year. Go figure. So it's as if, how many are you? 340 million Americans? Can you imagine that 350 million tourists came to visit one place in the United States? That's, so it's an important place, even if you think it's a place of... Uh, idol worship, and even if you think it's a circus, whatever you think, you should know, for many Jews, it's very important. 
And for me, it's important. And I spent 27 years schlepping my bones and schlepping 300 brave women, Orthodox, Reform, and Conservative together to the wall on every holiday, on every new month, and every month we were not treated nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after 20 some odd years, after the uh, rabbi of the wall, in his immense wisdom, decided to arrest us, detain us, and 55 of us were arrested by the Jerusalem police, um, the uh, pressure on Netanyahu became immense. Actually, his advisor, Yaakov Amidro, wrote a report uh, called Women of the Wall as a Strategic Threat to Israeli Interests in North America. <laughs> And it's you guys, it is women and men from here that made it very clear to the Israeli consul general, to the Israeli ambassador, to Netanyahu, that enough is enough. Reform Judaism is the largest stream in Jewish life. There are more Reform Jews than conservative and orthodox combined. And you, the Reform Movement, the conservative movement, all the federations of North America, the Jewish agency, said enough is enough. So... For three years, we conducted negotiations with the Prime Minister of Israel. It didn't go easy. I run a Jewish organization. I had my radicals who said, we can't negotiate. It is not negotiable. We should never leave the women's section. Uh, Every organization needs its radical voice, but I'm a pragmatic sort of girl. And besides, it's 27 years. So I have a parking spot at the Prime Minister's office. For three years, we negotiated this document. And this document has a uh, section that's never appeared in any Israeli law ever in the past. There are three words here that never appeared ever in the Israeli law books. Local custom on the southern plaza will be based on the principles of pluralism, gender equality, and worship will be egalitarian. Did you hear this? So, and Netanyahu realized how important this is for you, and he announced to major Jewish organizations that he's committed to this program, and this is going to be revolutionize the wall. People will come to the wall in one entrance and will have to make up their minds. Do they want to go to the northern plaza and be under the complete jurisdiction of the rabbi of the wall? Completely by the rabbis, you cannot, uh, there'll be a lot of things you won't be able to do. Or from the same entrance, you will be able to see the southern plaza that will be run, headed by Natan Sharansky, by the reform movement, the conservative movement, and women of the wall. And there'll be things you can't do at one, and there are things you can't do at the other. And the two plazas at the same wall, same entrance, will actually, for the first time in Israel's history, show that there's more than one way to be Jewish. Okay. Thank you. I'm going to put on my women of the wall talit, because I pose as a social activist. I really am a shmate salesperson. And I want to sell you as many talitot as possible. Wear your support for Women of the Wall. It's made of wool and cotton. It comes with a kippah and a bag. And it's a lovely thing to have. And there are quite a few here. And I'm not schlepping them back to Israel. (laughs) So uh, once these recommendations were passed on the 31st of January by the Israeli government, 15 to 5, It's not unanimous, but 15 members of the cabinet voted for it, including Netanyahu. 
Uh, the first step in the recommend what? Did you say including whom? Netanyahu, oh. our prime minister. And the first thing to do, this is a roadmap. It says how we're going to proceed. The first thing is that the Minister of Religion and the Minister of Justice together have to make Natan Sharansky. You all know who he is? Yes. He, Natan Sharansky, is going to be in charge of the new plaza. They have to make him in charge, and then he has to uh, appoint the reform, the conservative and women of the world, to sit on his commission, and then it starts a 45-day planning of how the plaza will look. Uh, this has to be done within 30 days. Well, the 30 days are gone, and the Minister of Religious Affairs did not sign this document. He says that he'd rather have his right arm cut off than he will sign it. And Netanyahu is saying, on the one hand, he said on Sunday, I'm committed to this. And on the other, he said, I asked the chief rabbis to give me their reservations within three weeks. I can save Netanyahu the time. I can tell you already what their reservations are going to be. Knock out gender equality, pluralism, and egalitarianism. Just get this out. I need counter pressure. We have come this far with your voices, and we need your voices to say to, the Net to Netanyahu, you must implement this. Let's imagine this wasn't an, a strife between brothers and sisters at the wall. Let's imagine this was a peace treaty. The government of Israel voted on this. You understand? They passed this. This is a decision of the government. You can't just say you're not going to do it because the rabbis don't like it. It was clear when you wrote it for three years that there will be opposition. So here are my two clipboards. Behold, with my, with my pens, sign up, please. I want to put you to work. We're going to need to do a lot of signatures and a lot of uh, petitions to Netanyahu. Thank you. <laughs> As a result of uh, what's going on now, the Jerusalem is covered with these posters. These are posters that uh, are uh, on the 360 billboards of the Jerusalem municipality. And if I can ask you, Rabbi, to just read what it says. This is hanging right now in Israel. The holiness of the wall extends its whole length is that, am I, is yes, yes, point? exactly. The holiness of the wall extends its whole length from its most southern corner to its most northern corner. It is inconceivable to divide the Kotel or the area adjacent to it. The reform, that's us, shall shatter us to splinters and split us into factions, an abomination unwanted by all. It shall be burnt in fire and consumed outside our camp and not enter the holiness. This monster is worse than all the seculars we know. In their actions, they bring chaos into the world and increase the power of Satan. God forbid. I think we shouldn't take these posters lightly. They, we should overreact to these posters. I've been a student of Israeli incitement for all my life. I don't remember such extreme language against any minority in Israel including the Arab minority, Muslim minority, Gypsy minority, Circassian, you name it, I know the minorities. This is extreme. 
And usually in Jerusalem's history, what happens is starts with posters, then graffiti, then a firebomb, then bloodshed. And I think we should be very concerned that what happens to the women of the wall, what happens to reform conservative synagogues, because the ultra-Orthodox are on a rampage, and they are because we are, we are doing well. We actually passed the tipping point. In this last few months, we won some very important day. Uh, just pass it along to another person. Okay. The rock is moving. Howard Cosell is taking over. Um, so I think we should overreact to this because uh, because uh, because I think they are a fighting a losing battle. They're very afraid that we're gonna take a piece of the pie, and it's high time we did. Let me say something about uh, religion. This is not a religious argument. This is, this is just a uh, uh, challenge to the hegemony of orthodoxy in Israel. We are a very argumentative people. I don't know if you realize this. <laughs> uh, the first Jew, the first thing he does with the new God, he just doesn't fall on his face and say, Thank you, God, for showing me your glory. That's not what Abraham does. You remember what the first discussion is about? How many uh, just people can be in Sdom? And like a used car salesman, Abraham starts arguing 50, 40, 30. And then at one point he says, uh, the ruler of the whole world does not rule justly. What kind of a God are you? Uh, and this goes on. And it continues when uh, Moses wants to resign, and then the people want to resign. God wants to resign. Then the prophets want to resign. Then the kings put the prophets in jail. And, the, and we are arguing throughout the Bible. Does it get better in Talmud? No. 3,000 pages of one huge, long argument. People arguing over things that are so ridiculous. You take a, a stove, how many pieces, if you cut a stove into nine pieces, how many pieces would still make a kosher matzah? One of, <laughs> is it or isn't it one of the most important Talmudic discussions we know, Rabbi? It is. It's a beautiful discussion in Talmud. One of the best ones there are. Who cuts an oven into nine pieces anyway? But we're arguing over it. And if there was a uh, Olympics in Israel, this will be our sport. Free arguing. We will argue. So where all this argument is gone? It's gone when the state of Israel has given one stream of Judaism full and complete monopoly over all religious services. That's when the argument ended. There's no more competition. In all my living days, I have not seen an ad Rabbi wanted. To see this ad, I buy an American Jewish paper. You fire rabbi. I've never seen a rabbi defrocked in Israel. Never seen a rabbi defrocked in Israel. And it's not because they're all tzaddikim. 2,200 state-paid rabbis in Israel and not one of them defrocked. Not one of them fired for misconduct. And some went to jail for statutory rape. But I'm saying, even then, Rabbi Metzger is on his way now for uh, chief rabbi to jail. He's still going to be rabbi. I've never seen an ad Rabbi wanted. That is a very clear sign of a corrupt third world system. It means if you find my cousin, a nice 
job at a falafel stand as a kashrut inspector, I will find your brother-in-law a nice job as a rabbi at the Kalkul municipality. That's how it works. So there's no competition. And to add to the no competition, all the graduates of the Hebrew Union College and the Jewish Theological Seminary are not considered rabbis in Israel. Have you heard of HUC and JTS? Yes. Okay, so this is called chutzpah. Chutzpah. Israel does not recognize these major institutions. The Pope recognizes HUC. Every university in the world recognizes JTS. And Israel doesn't? That means that all the thousands graduates of these institutions are not rabbis in Israel. They can't perform a wedding. They can't perform a burial. They can't offer Israelis religious services. Who can? Only the beard. And the graduates of a variety of institutions that you have not heard of. I, as a city councilor, visited some of the places that ordain Orthodox rabbis, and some of them are P.O. boxes. Some are real institutions, but some are not. So there is no competition, there is no argument, and as a result, there is a complete bankruptcy of orthodoxy in Israel. How do I know there's bankruptcy? Look at the real sages of the Talmud, or Maimonides. They were all in the yellow pages. This one was a cobbler. Who was a surveyor? Hillel or Hillel or Shammai? One was a builder. Ah, Shammai was a builder, the other one was a surveyor. They were all with professions. They actually worked. And they also wrote uh, the Talmud. And they also wrote the Maimonides was a physician. And he also wrote the Yad HaZakai, Mishneh Torah, and a few other. How could this be? In um, in New York, there is a store called B&H. It sells camera equipment. Israelis go there in droves. There are buses of Israelis going from the central station in New York to B&H and back. And people in B&H are all ultra-Orthodox. And uh, some of them say to me, if I had a dollar for every Israeli that walks in and says, what, you know about cameras? (laughs) I'd be a millionaire. Israelis go in and they're shocked to see an ultra-Orthodox person working. (laughs) <laughs> El Al has a, a poster I ran out of it a, 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 earlier in, in North Carolina someone took it for me I had a poster from El Al it shows two men working in B&H they're packing a package and one is lifting a package and it says if you want to see them work $1,500 round trip to New York <laughs> Israel has exempted Ultra-Orthodox boys from studying core curriculum. They don't study math, science, English, civics, life skills. The girls study, the boys don't. They study only Torah. They're unemployable adults. They are brilliant, unemployable adults. They can't count to 100 in English. They can't recognize their own name. They can't multiply. I taught one of them to multiply, and he told me it's a divine concept. As a result of this, the whole ultra-Orthodox family is changing because mom is the breadwinner, and mom knows everything. That's true in every family, but it's true in (laughs) ultra-Orthodox families now. She knows if a kid wants to know, and they have quite a few kids, what's a mortgage, where's the bank, how does the train work. The person to ask is mom. mom. Mom knows. Dad would know. 
if there is a goat and it's being pushed into the ocean by a whale and to the mountains by oxen, where does the Trum Shabbat go? Is that true? And the thing about the oven. And what happens if the slave trips on a Shabbat with the warm water for the bris? Can you rewarm the water? These are questions that dad would know a lot about. The result is that the status of dad is, the status of mom is going up. This concerns the rabbis. And as a result of this concern, a wave of modesty obsession has engulfed Israel in the last 10 years. Here is a sign from Bechemish, the hub of religious coercion in Israel. Uh, I'll show you the sign. And uh, can you, do you uh, we're, Rabbi, you're going to be a reader here today. Sorry. Could you read this? This is the sign. This is the actual sign in Bechemish. Request and demand. No, read it with your godly voice. <laughs> Cantor. Request and demand. <laughs> Women waiting for their husbands are asked to wait only in hidden places. Oh, God. Like behind the white pickup truck, etc. Don't stand near the synagogue's entrance. Don't be a distraction or a stumbling block to men praying or studying in the study hall. God forbid. God forbid. <laughs> Uh, we sued the mayor of Bechemish for this sign and many others. He said that these signs prevent, uh, prevent violence because if women dressed like prostitutes walk next to the synagogue, there will be violence. We sued him in court. Four women from Bechemish sued him for damages. He had to pay 15000 to everyone. Now we have 92 new women who are suing the mayor for... They're either going to go bankrupt or clean up this, uh, these signs. But when you wonder how come in Israel, the Israel of Golda Meir, the Israel of uh, the woman with the Uzi, the pioneer, how come we have these modesty things now, the segregated buses? Maybe I can show you. Um, this is a sign that's in every Israeli bus. Every passenger may sit in any seat of her choosing. Uh, harassing a passenger regarding her seating choice may be constitute a crime. This is in every Israeli bus today. Uh, we got it there. And, uh, but at the, when we got this up, there were 2,500 rides every day where women were supposed to board from the back, seat, back door and sit in the back of the bus. You're asking how did this, all this happen in Israel, and I'm saying it happened because of this. We've changed the ultra-Orthodox family and we've raised a generation of men who are brilliant and can't live in object poverty, have many children, and cannot uh, uh, earn a living. The only thing they can do is be a technician in a shatnez laboratory, a kashrut inspector, a rabbi working in the cemetery or working in the mikvaot in the ritual baths. What happens as a result of having only these professions? Once it was enough, for a kashrut uh, company to send one kashrut inspector to Buenos Aires to check that the meat in, in Argentina is really kosher. Now we send 10. One has to check that the ink that the Argentinians use as a plomba, it's not made of pig's blood. And another one has to, why do we need to have this elaborate kashrut? Because we have so many unemployable young men that that's the only thing they can do. 
So the cashew industry has mushroomed and grown. It's now a billion and a half dollars a year just to. Ch- you understand that we have kashrut for soap, for shampoo, kashrut for paper, kashrut for oh, diapers, everything has kashrut. It's a huge industry because all these people need employment. So, <laughs> it's, time to, uh, it's time to change our policy towards orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is a respectable stream in Judaism. It should compete in the open market of religious services with other streams. Our rabbis should be recognized. Our institutions should be supported. We should have our place under the sun. Here is the big revolutionary idea. There is more than one way to be Jewish, and the Jewish state has to adopt this. It's the value of pluralism. That's it. So why am I bothering you with this? I should talk to my own people. I do. I talk to my own people. But you are, I want to engage you in this because you've been silent long enough. And you've been silent because Israelis, uh, uh, you buy the cheap shot of the, what the Israelis say. You don't pay taxes in Israel. You don't send your children to the army. You shut up. Give me money and shut up. That's, I think that's the exchange. I don't understand that. This is the only sovereign Jewish state on the planet. When we goof, it reflects on you. If we stop a 15-year-old Muhammad Abu Khder in the street, we make him drink gasoline, and we set him, al- al- uh, set him alight while he's alive, this is a lynching that happened in Israel just a few years ago, or the Dawabshe family, that, it reflects on you. So the values of the Jewish state are a reflection of Jewish values, and we are engaged in the most important dialogue of our lifetime. If Israel is the most important development in in Jewish history, which I think it is, uh, what are the Jewish values of the Jewish state? And you have a say on Jewish values. We're sitting in a Jewish institution. We're led by Jewish leaders. What are the values of the Jewish state? Ethnocentrism, racism, chauvinism, or pluralism, equality, and tolerance, as the rabbi read from our own Declaration of Independence. You are a player, and when you're quiet, you know, for bad things to happen, good people just have to be quiet. So here we are faced with a dilemma. Should we wring our hands or roll up our sleeves? You can't do both together. You have to decide what you're gonna do, and I'm here to really encourage you to roll up your sleeves. There's a lot you can do. Look at this uh, success at the wall. It was not done by the power of the Israelis alone. It was done by partnership. We did it together. Now let's push forward. You realize that if at the wall we'll have a pluralism, we'll have pluralism in other things. It's an excellent vehicle. It's like a little engine that could, and it can carry other cars behind it. I wanted to say one thing about El Al. Um, we've heard for a long time about the segregation on El Al flights, that women are asked to move by an ultra-Orthodox man who refuses to sit unless the woman is moved because he doesn't want to sit next to a woman. Raise your hand if you've heard of such a thing. Yes. So we've been waiting for a long time for a good case. And the good case was someone who can actually testify well as someone that, uh, uh, and we wanted something that the flight attendant is taking active part in removing the woman. We had many cases, hundreds of cases, where there was just social pressure. But the El Al company says, 
it's a voluntary arrangement. Uh, like if you, you were not seated next to your wife and you asked someone, uh, please, would you allow me to? It's something voluntary. Our, it's certainly not policy of Elal. And we wanted, when a flight attendant is actually active, we found a case. Uh, Rene Rabinovich, who flew on the 2nd of December 2015, flight 28 from Newark to Ben-Gurion. She was in business. It's her first case in business. Uh, she was seated in the aisle next to the window. In the window, nobody sat. And then a man, a chassid, came to sit at the window. He spoke to the flight attendant in Hebrew. She didn't understand. And then the flight attendant said, why don't you move forward? Better view of the first class. Uh, and he moved and sat her next to two women. It's only after an hour of a flight that she suddenly became suspicious of why she moved, because she realized this is not a better seat at all. And she went back to her seat, and she asked the guy, did you ask for me to be moved? And he said, yes, my religion forbids me to sit next to you. Uh, so uh, she, we wrote a letter to El Al on her behalf. Uh, El Al wrote back that uh, they're willing to give her $200 off her next uh, ticket. Uh, they said that it's not a company policy at all and that she was helped in moving to the new seat. It was no, uh, wasn't any hardship on her at all. Uh, we're suing El Al now for 65,211 shekel, uh, which is the most you can sue in small claims court without uh, showing uh, damages. Uh, Rene Rabinovich is 81 years old. She's a Holocaust survivor. She walks with a cane. I don't know a judge in Israel that won't award her the full amount. It is illegal to segregate in flights. And outside, you can pick up a flyer that's called Your Rights on Flights. Please take it. And we encourage you, if, right? We encourage you, if the flight attendant asks you to move, please move and sue el al. Since, <laughs> since Rene, we have four other cases, very good cases. And uh, to just add a treat, we just got a call from a flight attendant who says, I have memos, it's company policy. We're told as flight attendants to remove women. This is going to be changed. Good, now it's your questions. <laughs> have a problem in putting our arms around why the minority of the Orthodox has so much power in Israel and, and, and I just we just can't understand it you know I want to say that I have the same problem I heard about the Sandy Hook massacre and I thought this is such a tragedy for America but I thought there's something good would come out of it now Americans will change gun control laws, for sure. And there's a study that came out, a poll. It said 95% of Americans want to change gun control laws. And then it comes to the Senate, and I read that it failed. And I think, what could possibly be stronger than 95% of the American voters? And you say, oh, we have a centered, focused, well-financed lobby that is so strong that is pushing our government to against 95% of Americans. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. Now you got it. 
When you figure the NRA, we figure out our Haredim. Our Haredim, <laughs> the ultra-Orthodox are a strategic partner to any government in Israel. And the two, part, the labor and the Likud, compete who's going to give them more. And they're cheap. All they want is funding and monopoly. That's it. Keep my monopoly going. Give me funding for my army of unemployable young men. We're looking at the values of equality, pluralism, and tolerance. And this is where you are part of the, you are part of the game. Rabbi Cohen, there's something I want to say. Please. Uh, there's always been in Israel every holiday, Birkat Kohanim, the, the priestly blessing. Kohanim are people who are sons and grandsons of Kohanim. You are a Kohen, right? Every year, the uh, Pesach is the biggest one. 30,000 people attending. 1,000 Kohanim may do this thing with their hands, which you can do. I can. And uh, they bless the pr everybody. We want this Pesach to do Birkat Kohanim in the women's section. We will call it Birkat Kohanot. We want to identify women who are daughters of a Kohen or a Kohenet, and they will come and put their talit over their heads, and they will bless a thousand women that will come for this. And uh, this requires some funding, because we need to identify them, encourage them to think of themselves as Kohanot, and we need to transport them to Jerusalem. They don't need to schlep. We're going to get a taxi to take you. You're going to be able to come. And uh, we want the, to make this happen. And we were thinking, who would be willing to fund such a thing? And we turned to Susan Nimoy, the, the widow of Leonard Nimoy, who made this famous. Be well and prosper. And we just got the $20,000 from the Nimoy Foundation. Get ready for Pesach. Happy to take a few more? Yeah. Okay. Dvora. Well, actually, at that point, I heard enough more important things than what I wanted to say. I read a book written by an Orthodox Jew, but I think it's a modern Orthodox. Uh, the book described the Yom Kippur War. And he wrote Yashar Kavanot or something. It's a very good book. He wrote with a group of people from his yeshiva, but they are modern Orthodox, and they are in the army. So not all the Orthodox people are losers. Yeah. <laughs> I was talking about the ultra-Orthodox. Chaim Sabato is a member of the very rare and wonderful group of the modern Orthodox of Israel, but it's a group that the Chaim Sabato's children say to Chaim, if to be religious, all the way. He's losing out to the ultra-Orthodox. And uh, yes, unfortunately. Yes. So his book, Teum Kavanot, is really a mess. I remember. It, it yes. was a good book. He's a wonderful writer. And, and I was so inspired by it. I called my sister right away. Orthodox people go to the army? She said, yeah. Not mother. only the modern Orthodox are one-third of all the officers in the army. Yes. I'm worried about that. But basically, <laughs> it's true that modern Orthodox have seen the, see the army as one of the vehicles of a religious expression, and they're excelling in the army. I'm talking about ultra-Orthodox. 
just the numbers, 8% of Israelis say that they are reform or conservative. 8% of Israelis say they are ultra-Orthodox. Professor Hecht. Uh, well, thank you very, very much. We, uh, I brought a lot of my students here. Yay! And, uh, they're, uh, they're in a course with me on the religion and politics of Jerusalem. And so we're familiar with, uh, uh, we started with the agreement, and of course we're ending with uh, the questioning of the agreement. But I want to take us in another direction, because you're a city council person, or were. Um, the city of Jerusalem is changing dramatically as a result of the Haredim. Um, and how do you um, live in that environment? Uh, where neighborhoods that were once uh, secular, like portions of Rehavia, uh are now blocked off, right, on Shabbat and on the festivals. Uh, so you have this sort of emptying out or hollowing out of anyone who isn't uh, ultra-Orthodox. And, and so that's one question. And then what do you, I mean, how does Bar, Barkat, um, deal with these kinds of things in his own city. He's the mayor, after all. He must have some control, does he? Or is the city, or is the city council now also a majority of Haridim that make it virtually impossible for him to do any kind of real politics? Okay. So Jerusalem is the largest city in Israel. It's twice as big than Tel Aviv. It is the poorest city in Israel. It's not a Zionist city. One-third are Arab, one-third are ultra-Orthodox. Our capital doesn't have a Zionist majority. I think Washington isn't white either. So your capital doesn't resemble the general population of the United States. Our capital doesn't resemble the Jerusalem. We're all sworn to love forever is not Zionist. Meir Bakat has just registered in the Likud party. He's seen the light. He is bringing his uh, uh, ultra-Orthodox with him, and he is going to compete against Netanyahu in the same field. He's going to say that his ultra-Orthodox are going to beat Netanyahu's ultra-Orthodox. What is my hopes about Jerusalem? I am 61. I'm thinking about retirement, and I bought an apartment in Haifa. (laughs) (laughs) And I was born in Jerusalem. I was a city councilor for many years. Uh, this is going to uh, a place that is not going to be livable. So I think uh, Jerusalem is going to be split between the Arab town and the Jewish town. And in the Jewish town, we're going to have to either a mayor with vision who will give us some employment. The problem is poverty. Just uh, Jerusalem has, a, and the situation, the tourist situation with uh, this uh, terrible incident that happened two days ago, the Tyler Force, 29-year-old uh, West Point uh, graduates was was uh, murdered in uh, in Jaffa. I think it's gonna, Jerusalem's going to take a terrible hit in its only industry, tourism. I don't think uh, people are going to be likely to come, and uh, we're going to be left alone with our poverty and our strife between each other. Uh, the news from Jerusalem are not very good, but the hope about the ultra orthodox is half of all the ultra orthodox are women. And uh, our report, which is outside, excluded for God's sake, 
It's a report about exclusion of women in the public sphere. It's almost entirely information that we get from ultra-Orthodox women. They're on the march. This, uh, this was done after we petitioned to the Supreme Court by 26 ultra-Orthodox women. They are changing orthodoxy. The rabbis are very worried. They're speaking on the radio. They have shows. They're walking in the streets. They're fighting these signs. They're doing... Th- I think ultra-Orthodoxy may change. I have hopes. And remember Adina Bar Shalom, that uh, ultra-Orthodox leader that started employability. So I have hopes for the ultra-Orthodox coming out of women. And how wonderful for you to study about Yerushalayim uh, without being there. Aren't you going to take them there? What? Are you taking your students for... I wish for... I could. I, mean, I could have been so many times. <laughs> but the student yeah. go. The student from the university go to Israel anyway. And, uh, no, but these students... I once took a, a 40 Lutheran priests to a Jerusalem city council. I put them in the back and I said, you know, just get a little taste of the city council and then leave. They sat for four hours. They don't know a word of Hebrew. What did it, they said? It's the finest show they've ever seen. <laughs> this is Rabbi Ari Yudavin, who is the founding director of American Reform Association of Reform Zionists of America. This is the umpteenth time I've heard you, and you keep on getting better and better. I think the last time was in uh, the old city in a corner ah, right. for the JCPA. We were talking about you had just been arrested one of those times. Um, first of all, the, um, I, I was pleased, I smiled a little bit, that the Orthodox have done us a favor by saying that the site of the new uh, platform near Robinson's Arch is a part of the wall. Uh, there, was some, there was some question about that and some controversy, but the Orthodox tell us that it is part of the wall, and we accept their word and mazel tov on, on, the, on what you've attained. I don't have a question, but I do have a, a suggestion. And that mentioned getting our message across through emails, through support of, of Iraq, but also in person, not only in Israel. Uh, I, I visited the Israeli Consul General in Chicago and New York when I was there, and it's very effective. We should put together a, a carload of people or a couple of carloads to go down and visit the Consul General in Los Angeles. That makes an impact. And even more so, I believe the Deputy Consul General is going to be here for the film festival uh, next week. So I'm going to call Michael Rassler tomorrow. We don't want to pick it or sandbag the guy. See, Michael Rassler is director of our federation. If he can set up a quiet meeting for us, that we can just bring our, our concern. Let him know that we're aware. Ira, what would make you pick it, the guy? Excuse me? What has to happen for you to pick it, the guy? What, would hap- what has to happen for you to get on a, on a bus and drive to Los Angeles with your talitot and your Torah scrolls and your rabbis, stand outside the Israeli consulate and say enough is enough? What has to happen? A stabbing of a reformed Jew in Israel? A murder of a women of the wall at, on Rosh Chodesh? What, think of where, get ready for what you're, what's going to make you move. We'll have, for that, we'll have to plan. I'm talking about something we can do next We're week. We're planning. Um, and uh, Dan is, is a representative of the consul coming up for the Israel Committee teaching. Yes. Is, is the, will the consul, consulate be, be represented at the teach-in? We may have two opportunities in the next three weeks. Great. Start being nice and 
Remember, Israel is very sensitive. We're watching. If you jump out of your skin, Israel responds. And I'm afraid because we are at the tipping point. You know, Amos Oz, one of Israel's yes, genius yes, writers, says, we, says we're moving in life with a car that the windshield is covered. It's opaque. We can't see forward. We only can use the rear view mirrors to show us how to drive. That's a beautiful image. I am telling you, we will look back at 2016 and realize we pushed a tipping point. The winning at the mikvaot, the winning at the kotel, the recognition of the seven reform rabbis, the building of the seven reform synagogues. We have made a great push in this last year. The winning that's coming in El Al, the, ch- the changing in all the buses, the women who are speaking now at Kol Barama Radio, these are all winning. We sue the state of Israel 60 times a year. That's more than once a week. Don't call us, we'll sue you. <laughs> and, and the cluster of winnings is now bringing us over the top. That's why there is such pushback. So I need you to really think about it. What would it take for you to decide to take a day off and stand outside the Israeli consulate till he begs you to come upstairs? <clears throat> Gosh, um, I forgot your name. Julian. So I'd like to know about the uh, position of non-observant and atheistic Jews in Israel, and is your organization representing them in any way? Do they have particular problems? I think a large, there's a large population of atheistic Jews in the United States that would be concerned about what's, are concerned about what's happening in Israel. Atheistic Atheistic is what? People who are not... Uh, it's very hard to find an Israeli who really is atheistic or secular, who's really secular. Of course, many Israelis say, I'm secular. And then ask a question. Do you have a Seder on Pesach? Yes. Sure. Would you, would you uh, circumcise your son? Of course. Do you eat cheese on Shavuot? Yes. Do you like Hanukkah candles? Yes. What are you going to do in Purim? Oh, dress up and eat the uh, Amentashen. Before you, Tu Bishvat, he plants a tree. Like Baomer, he has a bonfire. Before you know it, he's observing more holidays than a religious Jew here. So it's hard to pinpoint them. But when I say 8% of Israelis say they would rather have a reform or conservative rabbi in their lives, they are mostly secular Israelis. And they want to have an, the person in the wedding that officiates in the wedding, a person that would not make them bring a tzetele, a note from the mikveh, that the bride has gone through uh, a compulsory bridal advice. Sadly, this is one case that we lost. We usually were spoiled. We are usually winning, but this one we lost. We represented 400 brides who demanded that the bridal advice will be uh, not compulsory, but optional. optional. If you want to hear the advice of the Rebetzin, you go. And if you don't, you can get married without having a note from her. Uh, sadly, we lost. As long as the law is that orthodoxy, does, the only way to get married in Israel is orthodox, then it's compulsory. These meetings between the bride and this bridal advisor are comic at best, tragic at worst, 
because these are meetings between a well-meaning ultra-Orthodox woman and a secular bride. I can say about my own meeting, I was the fastest Jewess in the world at the time, and the uh, bridal advisor said to me, don't worry, get in the water, put your head in the water, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, I, I sat on the bottom and I blew some bubbles. Swimmers can be a long time underwater. <laughs> and I saw her running around that the bride is drowned. Lori. <laughs> uh, I just have one question related to gentleman behind me said earlier, and that is the Knesset, because as long as you have a splintered Knesset, what happens is that Likud picks up the ultra-Orthodox in order to stay in power. This sort of thing happens over and over and over again. The question I have to you is, what can be done about that? Because so, that only the, only the Israeli people can do. We can't do it. Yeah, but we're able to establish change using other arms. First, the Supreme Court of Israel. It's under the pressure of the Supreme Court of Israel that this recommendation at the wall has happened. It's under the recommendation of this recommendation, the rule of the Supreme Court, that the, bus, the segregation on buses ended. It's under the rule of the uh, attorney general. Those, those signs were taken out of the street. So, yes, we're using the legal system, which works. That's not political. And we're using you. Look at the conversion case. Do you know that any reform or conservative convert in the planet arriving in Israel will immediately receive an Israeli citizenship? This is the rule of the Supreme Court. We won this 12 years ago. Uh, every party I know of the ultra-Orthodox side, every one of them wants to change the law of return. They want to define a Jew, anyone born of a Jewish mother, or has converted kahalacha, according to Orthodox Jewish law. But we have a lot of conversion. Why have they not changed the law if they're so powerful? Why not? Why didn't the Orthodox parties in 67 years of wishing to change the law, why did they not change it? Why? Who stopped them? They are so powerful. What stopped them? You did. You did. You were not willing to have the law of return change. You remember who's the Jew arguments? Missions, letters. You are stopping them. So that's why I'm here. Mickey Flex. I, I have bona fide credentials as a secular Jew. Uh, I may be the only one in town, but uh, I really am. Um, and I have a Seder, a secular Seder. My secularism is quite similar to the founders of Israel, what they believed when they came. Um, but I think that you have inadvertently touched on some of the whys of the problems that you're facing. Israel was founded as a Jewish state by people who weren't big on religion. By the time it was founded, they, some of them were more religious, but the principles that started Zionism and uh, the pioneer movements did not really include religion very much. In order to Dilute in order to counter the, the efforts of the, Israel, uh, the religious community 
both in Israel and here, who at that time did not believe in a Jewish state, would not support a Jewish state, they said, okay, you can have all the religious things. So you have a state that's founded originally by essentially secularists that then puts religion as part of its basic foundation. But its founders don't really believe in that. So it's left to the Orthodox, who are the biggest believers, to develop the, the machinery of the state within an Orthodox framework. And that's what happened. And I'm not sure that it's going to change by, by Americans doing anything about it. Furthermore, you asked, what is it going to take? For me, what it's going to take is the knowledge that I've been on a lot of picket lines, and I know how to do a line and make a sign and all of that. I don't want to be called an anti-Semite by other Jews. And that is the fate of somebody who would try to picket the Israeli consulate. There is not agreement because of, this, of the confusion of Israel as a state and Judaism as a religion. And it is a confusion. It's a shotgun marriage, if you know what that means. Uh, it is not possible, at least today, in this country, to so clearly and uh, militantly attack something that's happening in Israel without getting into a lot of trouble. And it's a problem because people, don't, you know, it's not so much fun to pick it and to get in trouble for it. Besides, it's not something they want to do. Okay, what a great last question. First day, Rabbi, Rabbi, listen. Could you, could you just remind her about this part? In... Well, it's, it's from the uh, Declaration of Independence. Uh, Israel's Declaration it's, of Independence. Uh, well, for distribution outside. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's, it's basically what I read before. Um, yeah. That it will, that is the state of Israel, will ensure complete equality of social and political rights. This is the As part. envisioned by our prophets. That's it. It's a Jewish and democratic state. And there's a wonderful American idiom, how to, you've got to learn to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that's what Israel has to do. And as for your comment that it's no fun and that you don't want to be called anti-Semite, uh, you're going to have to decide to do something that's not fun. Because it's worse if you sit on the sidelines. And you need to decide to do something. Uh, you know, I was thinking about it when I was in jail. And uh, yes, and I was thinking, what am I doing here? It's pretty, I, I couldn't believe they actually did it. The handcuffs, the leg cuffs, the body search. Oh, I can ser- I'm, ser- I'm saving you a heart attack. If you are, je- if you are taken to uh, the Jerusalem police, you're asked to take all your clothes off. And the policewoman comes in, if you're a woman, or a policeman comes in. And they take a latex glove and they put it on their hand. And you've seen all these movies like Midnight Express, okay? And you think you know what's coming? They're checking the clothes. It's, that's what they're checking, the clothes, okay? I'm saving you a heart attack. That's it. 
it's one of the necessary, unfun things that we must do. This is many years of marriage speaking. Love is what remains after you know the truth. We've talked some hard truths about Israel today. And if there is love in your heart left, then someone will call you an anti-Semite. Someone will call him a, uh, what were you called? An You're turning Jews into... And I'm a, a well-known Nazi. Okay, so they called him. So they called us names. The wall is one wall. I don't take from them advice. Where is the wall? The wall is the western retaining wall of the temple. The southern plaza is part of the western wall. We have to fight for this implementation because this is a little engine and behind it is another car. Freedom of choice in marriage and divorce. Freedom of choice in burial. Freedom of choice in kashrut. If we don't let this little car, this engine has to move. If it doesn't move, the rest of the stuff is also going to stay. And I'm old and we need to finish this already. (laughs) So... I, ex- I expect you to write a sign and stand outside the Israeli consulate and be called whatever name it is, and you're not going to do it alone. There are going to be a whole community around you and all around the world. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.